During my childhood, I grew up learning to play the violin. And one day after a lesson, my teacher asked my parents, could, we, uh, could she use our church building for an opportunity for the students to play? Now, 12-year-old me thought, wow, this is great. It would be just like a regular lesson, except all my friends would be there, and I get, would get to show them all the cool hiding places in the church. Now, we would, we, for the day finally came, and I showed up earlier because my parents had the keys to the church, and I, as, I, as I saw all the students and families arriving, I noticed something. They were all wearing white button-down t-shirts and dark slacks for the guys and, and dark skirts for the girls. The boys had ties on. Me? I thought I was going to be playing, so I showed up in shorts and sneakers with holes in them because I was skateboarding. I had a t-shirt that had a Michelob beer logo on the front of it. Even more than that, I had braces and headgear. See, I was a little bit oblivious because when, I, when the teacher asked us to use the church, I didn't realize that she was asking to do a recital at the church building. And so you could imagine what it was like when I showed up in my turn. I walked up with my violin under my arm, standing in front of everybody, you know, bow, put it back up, set, and be flashing my Michelob beer t-shirt to the entire audience. I made it through the, the performance that, that day, but not without having all these images burned in my memory. I felt like a dork a total outsider that didn't belong. Have you ever walked into a room where you feel like you don't belong there? You know what that's like? Maybe it's because of the way you're dressed like I was on that particular day, or maybe it's because of the color of your skin or the way you talk or your style. Or maybe you feel like your story or your viewpoint or your education, or maybe your skills don't match up with what you perceive as others in the room on that day. You might feel like an outsider. Now, I'm guessing that you prob- no one will have had the- remembered what I wore or what happened to me on that day at the recital in as much detail as I did, but it's burned in my memory long enough to share with you all today. In fact, I have a picture of it. Can you throw it up? Oh, you don't have it? Oh, that's right. I don't want you to see it because if I did you'd have to sign non-disclosure agreements for how much of a nerd I was. But it was burned in my memory long enough to share with you all today. And in today's text, we have a story of an outsider who comes to a gathering of insiders. And the result is, Jesus tells us that this outsider would be remembered for as long as the gospel would be preached. This act of worship by this outsider is honored by Jesus in a way that all of the insiders there could not even begin to imagine for themselves. From this encounter with Jesus, we learn something about worship. We see what worship looks like from those who are marginalized. We see what worship that is meaningful looks like, and ultimately what motivates true worship of Jesus. You know, as followers of Christ, we are called to live lives of worship to God. But what exactly is worship? We talk about it a lot. We gather for a worship service, whether it's in person or online. Worship means literally to give worth to. 
Now, Christian worship is giving worth to God in response to the greatness of God, his love for us, and his mercy. And that's why it's a vital part of our vision as a faith community that Daryl mentioned at the beginning of the service. We want to be a faith community that of vibrant worship, where our lives and uh, the world is all pointing to the greatness and the great worth of God because of what we've experienced in Christ. Now, while we gather here on a Sunday, might be called a worship service, that is not meant to be the extent of our worship as Jesus' followers. In the text today, we see two expressions of worship that are revealed in this encounter with Jesus. One is from Simon, the Pharisee, who hosts Jesus in his home. And the other is from who Luke tells us is the woman who lived a sinful life. If you look at verse 36 and 37, you'll see it come up on the screen on the bottom there. As we read through this text, we see a number of (laughs) contrasts that in the kinds of worship that Jesus encounters. Some might refer to them now as intersectionalities and those series of factors that reflect interdependent systems of marginalization. So here we have a named man, Simon, versus an unnamed woman. We have the reputation of a man who is in authority, who has an upright standing in the community, versus this woman of ill repute. Both of these individuals would have been known in the community, but for very different reasons. Three times in the very first verse, we're told that this man is a Pharisee. A Pharisee invited Jesus. Jesus went to the Pharisee's house. Jesus ate at the Pharisee's house. You see, the Pharisees were the most influential of this Jewish sects, and they controlled the, the temple and the administration of the law and how to interpret the law and how to live it out. Pharisees were very concerned about their personal righteousness and who they associated with. He was a member of the spiritual elite. On the other hand, this woman is known in the town, but for a different reason, for living a sinful life. That's what we're told. Likely, this woman was a Jewish prostitute or at least someone who was perceived as seeking something disreputable as she came to this meal and began to take, uh, undo her hair and began to anoint Jesus' feet. We have their names, their reputations that are at opposite ends, and there's a position. Here we have the host of the meal versus this uninvited guest. And you might wonder how it works for party crashers back then in ancient times compared to what we experience now. Back then, hospitality was a much more porous affair. When you threw a party, you didn't have like Eventbrite registrations and RSVP lists and guest lists and security at the door. Most meals, if you had a VIP like Jesus, a visiting rabbi, would in their home, would always have open doors for uh, uninvited guests to come and participate. They would just have to be silent and observe, but they could sit in the room and watch what was going on. But here, this is, uh, there's an uninvited guest. So, so having an uninvited guest like this woman at the meal was not out of the ordinary. And you have Simon, who, out of the abundance of what he had, opened this meal for people to come. Versus this woman, who likely gave up all that she possessed. We're told that this jar of perfume was probably worth, like, two and a half years of 
a, a, of, of wages back then. We also have this pla the place, the issue of place. Simon is at the table facing Jesus. And you have this woman who is unwelcome at the table, but she is at Jesus' feet. Now, we saw that picture during the story, children's story time of the men gathered around a table, seated on chairs like we would be. But back then, it was a little bit different. You see, what would happen, there would be a table on the floor, and the men would be lying on the floor with their left arm on the table, and their feet pointed towards the wall because their feet were dirty and considered shameful, and the right hand would be free to eat and to, to converse. So it's with that kind of setting that Jesus is seated at the table facing the other hosts and Simon, and this woman is at his feet, pointing away. And finally, there's this interaction. Do you notice the difference between Simon's interaction with Jesus and the woman's? You see, Simon was having a dialogue with Jesus this entire time, whereas the woman does not say a single thing. She, you might hear at this set, setting, all you would hear is her weeping. This entire scene is a, is a contrast between those on the inside and those on the outside, those who are considered spiritual elite versus those who are marginalized. In fact, if you read this entire chapter leading up to the scene, Luke is building a series of contrasts between the insiders and the outsiders. If you kind of scroll up or flip to the beginning of the pay chapter, you'll see Jesus um, crosses social taboos when he reaches the marginalized who are racially marginalized in verses 1 to 10. He goes and heals a Roman centurion's servant. He, he crosses marginal, uh, across lines economically to those who are marginalized when he raises the widow's son from the dead because she would be left destitute without someone to provide for her. He reaches across those who are marginalized religiously when he affirms John the Baptist's ministry to disciples and people who would question whether they were true Jews. And here in this scene, Jesus affirms those who are marginalized morally. It's often easy to see who is on the inside of Christian worship now. Perhaps they're the ones who get their sermons shared on YouTube or their songs played on streaming music stores. They're the faces and the names that we see at Christian conferences and on the bookshelves. They're the ones that do all the media interviews, speaking for the church. This scene reminds us to ask ourselves, who is at the margins, who is at the center of Christian worship, and who is at the margins of Christian worship in our day and age? Whose voices and whose actions are we overlooking that might lead, lend towards a richer and fuller worship of Jesus that we're missing because we're only focused on the insiders. Now, I'm not talking just about the typical dichotomy we have in the American church between conservatives and liberals. We're, uh, step outside of our nation. What about the faith expression of immigrants? What about those who have different musical preferences or who have different denominational or cultural traditions? How often do we listen to the, their faith and their worship of God, the same God that we worship. Did you know that the fastest growing segment of the Christian church globally is not in America? It's not in Europe or the West. It comes from the global South. 
where English isn't the dominant language, and the leaders of the Christian communities aren't white males. And often, this, this Christian expression of worship is charismatic and Pentecostal in influence. You know, I've been trying to read outside of Western American uh, influence, and I, I recently read an article from a Taiwanese ecological activist. Her name is Wan Li Ho. And she studied at Emory University in, in Pennsylvania, did her PhD there. And she challenges the notion of eco-feminism that dominates much of Western environmental activism. Rather than seeing male domination as the primary cause of abusing the earth, she advocated for a more relational view of women, of men, and the earth, the created order. It's a term that she called eco-familialism instead in place of ecofeminism because she's quite pragmatic in her approach but also in influenced by her asian upbringing she saw that the biological ecological problem is too big to alienate half of humanity over we need one another and her approach broadened my understanding of how we relate to the earth through the lens of chinese familial loyalty you know, American theology is informed much by rights and freedoms and individual responsibility, which are all very important, but it's not all of the gospel. It misses out on the sense of relatedness with our global family and with creation. You know, our diversity, especially from marginalized voices, can help broaden our worship of Jesus and our action in the world that reflects that worship and makes it more meaningful. You know, as the woman comes before Jesus, we see a different kind of worship that challenges the framework of the worship of, of Simon and the Pharisees. See, Simon was this upstanding Pharisee that would be considered very pious by everyone in his day and age. He would tithe regularly. He would fast regularly. He would go to temple every day, multiple times a day. He would be studying and interpreting scripture. And his sense of personal uprightness was a very important expression of worship for people like the Pharisees. His understanding of faithful worship would have been recognized by Jews of his time. He believed that how he worshipped and how he lived in this present life would affect his future resurrected life. And it's in that contrast of worship that we're told in verse 38 that G the woman comes before him, uh, Jesus, weeping. She comes to the feet of Jesus at this table and begins to weep and wet his feet with her tears. She undoes her hair publicly, which in ancient times would have been interpreted as something incredibly improper. It's an offer of intimate relationship with a respected rabbi in public. And as she breaks open this expensive jar of perfume, she anoints Jesus' feet. But Simon in verse 39, we're told, only sees the inappropriateness of her actions. But Jesus sees the depth of worship coming from her. Simon is confronted by Jesus accepting this, is confounded by Jesus accepting this behavior from her. But he doesn't say it out loud. It's his inside voice going. He's going, this doesn't make any sense. Her actions just further justify why Jesus may not be the one that everyone's claiming him to be. In Simon's worship framework, he's thinking, how could Jesus be a true prophet if he allows people like this woman to interact with him, to touch him? 
Jesus knows Simon's thoughts. Jesus demonstrates that he is indeed a prophet when he responds to Simon's inside voice, pointing out the sacrificial generosity of this woman's worship with a parable of debts owed to a moneylender. And Jesus continues on to point out the difference between Simon and the woman in verses 44 to 46. He says, then he turned to the woman, right? He turns to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, who expressed greater honor towards Jesus in this encounter? Jesus contrasts this woman's silent actions with all of Simon's talking, but accompanied with no action. She washes Jesus' feet, not with water, but with the tears coming from her eyes. She greets Jesus with kisses to his feet, where Simon fails to greet Jesus even with a kiss of welcome. She breaks open this jar of perfume in honor of Jesus, where Simon fails to even anoint his guest's head with oil. And in Mark's account of this scene in Mark chapter 14, some who were present, as the children's story illustrated to us, were very, very angry at the wastefulness of this extravagant action of the woman. But Jesus, in that, calls it beautiful. You see, the beauty and the meaning of the woman's act of worship was grounded on the object of her worship, and that was Jesus. The worship of Simon the Pharisee, on the other hand, was grounded on his self-righteousness, on, on whether Jesus would meet up to his ideas of proper behavior and of proper worship. Simon reflects what happens to us when we begin to worship, worship. We worship how worship makes us feel. We worship how a particular style of music or a particular style of preaching or a particular style of engaging together makes us feel. We compare our worship and our engagement with God with those around us. We find ourselves often like Simon the Pharisee where we focus more on the specific acts of worship rather than the object of worship. That's God. Like Simon the Pharisee, we can often find ourselves distracted from truly encountering the one who is seated at the table in front of us because we're so concerned about the kind of worship we're bringing to God. We're so concerned about the kind of worship that others are bringing to God and pointing them out. It's kind of like cancel culture. That's what's going on in this scene. Particularly, we can do that with those, for those who have different stories than us, from those on the margins. And this leads us to the final point about worship. What motivates, really, our worship? You see, Simon, the Pharisee, should really know better about being on the margins. You know why? Because before he was known as Simon the Pharisee, he was known as Simon the leper. In Mark chapter four, 14, verse 3, Mark opens the scene saying, when he, that's Jesus, was in Bethany, reclining at the table 
in the home of Simon the leper. See, Simon should have known what it meant to be excluded, to be an outsider. He knew what it was like to be quarantined from the rest of the city for years because of a highly infectious disease that he had that disfigured him, that caused his skin and his soft tissue like his ears and his nose to decay. Simon should have known that his leprosy would require him not just to wear a mask when he goes outside and physically distancing himself from others, but whenever he went outside, he would walk down the street and he'd have to go, unclean, unclean, telling people that he was unclean so that they could avoid him. Can you imagine going through years and years of that? But some, at some point in his life, he was healed of his leprosy. And he not only came back to, to normal functioning health, but he became a respected leader as a Pharisee. A man once known as Simon the leper was now known as Simon the Pharisee. He himself had experienced the mercy of God in a profound way. Yet his worship of the living God, did not reveal that he understood God's mercy. But when this unnamed woman comes before Jesus, she knew God's mercy. We're not told directly in these passages what precipitated this kind of radical worship from the woman. But Christian tradition has always associated this woman with Mary Magdalene, who's also Mary uh, Martha's Mary and Martha, the, the brother and sister of uh, the sisters of Lazarus in Bethany, which is where this takes place. Mary Magdalene, we're told, is healed of demonic possession. That and Luke talks about this in the following chapter. Her actions towards Jesus at this meal indicated that she had encountered God's mercy in such a life-altering way that she responded with this extravagant worship because she knew she didn't deserve it. She knew that she, she was so ensnared in her vices and, she was, and her identity was so shaped by her past and her story that she, she could not break apart from that identity without an intervention from someone else. She needed to be rescued, as the children's story put it so well. She had experienced the love of God when she had encountered Jesus. And that's why Jesus says to Simon, Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus finally turns to her and faces her and says the only line to her, saying, your sins are forgiven. The woman had experienced God's mercy in being set free from dem de uh, demonic oppression, but here she experienced God's grace, unmerited favor, when Jesus proclaims forgiveness for her sins, for her brokenness, for all the faults, the hopes that she put things that failed, for all the ways that she did not live into the way that God had created her to live. The woman's response reveals what kind of worship the Lord really delights in and calls beautiful. The beauty of her worship wasn't because of the expense of what she did or the extravagance of what she did or the unconventional nature of her worship compared to Simon, the Pharisee. Ultimately, what makes her and our worship beautiful is the object of worship. That object can only be God and God's mercy and character and beautiful love. That, that is what makes 
our worship beautiful. And that is what makes our worship worth remembering. You know, when we truly see the character of God lifted up and focused on, we cannot but realize our unworthiness because of our brokenness, because of our sin. As the song that Brian led earlier mentioned, we're all refugees. We're all outsiders, except by God's mercy and grace that covers our sin in Christ, offers forgiveness, and makes us whole. Our worship isn't beautiful because of what we make of it. But our worship is beautiful because of what God makes of us. And as we rely on and respond to God's mercy in Christ, that's what makes worship beautiful. You know, many years ago, I attended a church conference geared towards immigrants who spoke Mandarin. That's a language that I have zero fluency in. And so I went to this conference, and I had a bad attitude, but I was leading a youth group there, so I had to cover up my bad attitude, but I couldn't stop it. You see, when the music started, my musical preferences reared their ugly head, ugly heads. You know, as I sat there watching, and the, mu- the sound mix was all off, the arrangements were bad, there were no arrangements, the dynamics were, there was no dynamic range, it was loud and louder, and the vocalists were all singing the same part, there was no layering. The translations, see, it was a bilingual service, so we would sing sometimes in Chinese and sometimes in English, and the translations of some of the songs were really clunky because the melodies didn't match the syllables, syllables of the songs. And everyone in the congregation was committing what I consider to be the sin of all sins when it comes to, be, when it comes to corporate worship. They were clapping on the one and third beat of the phrase. I was stewing in my musical snobbery when I heard this little voice in my head say, Hey, Andrew, are these fellow sisters and brothers in God's family, in my family? I go, yeah. So why are you giving them a hard time for the way that they worship? I was like, well, because it's not that great. But God convicted me. They were expressing their love and their gratitude to God in the way that they knew how. And God said, look at their faces. Their faces of joy and of gratitude. What's your face look like? It doesn't look like joy and gratitude. They're encountering me in this moment. Are you? I was like, okay, 10-4 God. You got me. I know when I'm put in my place. I was worshiping my preferences for worship. I was judging other people's worship. I repented at that moment and asked God to help me see God's spirit at work in this gathering. And I closed my eyes and I said, God, I want to worship you. I want to tell you who I think you are and thank you for all the ways you've revealed your love to me. You know, we can find meaningful worship expressions everywhere Jesus' followers are, even those who we consider are on the margins. We, can't find, we can find meaningful worship expressions when our worship is motivated by the mercy of God, not by what we make of our acts of worship. And that's ultimately what makes worship radical, because it's the kind of worship that doesn't rely on us and our, our actions, but it's simply a response to God's love 
and God's forgiveness offered to us in Christ that changes our lives. May we be these kind of radical worshipers for the glory of Jesus' name. Amen.